let's get agreement that this is a strategic priority. That area of alignment and synergy can be very Looking important. The future, we're committed to expand valuation. time, there's still progress that needs to be made. This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. My name is Hannah Nelson, and I'm an assistant editor for EHRintelligence.com. Today, we have with us Maria Moen, Senior Vice President of Innovation and External Affairs at AD Vault, to discuss post-acute care interoperability. Access to accurate advanced care planning documents is key in ensuring providers meet patients' end-of-life care wishes. However, these documents can sometimes get lost in translation due to industry silos, leaving providers without crucial information to guide treatment decisions. The Post-Acute Care Interoperability Project, otherwise known as PASIO, is a collaboration between industry, government, and other stakeholders to create FHIR implementation guides for person-authored documents, such as advanced directives. Moen currently serves on the PASIO leadership team and is the lead of its Advanced Directive Interoperability with FHIR project. Thank you for joining us today, Maria. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for allowing us to speak on the important work we're doing. We, we appreciate it. Of course. Now, to get started, um, I'd love to hear about PASIO and how it brings together industry, government, and other stakeholders. Maria, could you just speak to you know the importance of public and private collaboration in this project? I'd be happy to. So I joined the PASIO community. PASIO was formed in late 2019, and it provides a forum for multidisciplinary dialogue and collaboration. And we work very, very hard to build consensus around the industry goals, priorities, and approaches. We promote industry-wide standards, and we discourage deployment of unique solutions that really impede interoperability. So we provide an opportunity for continuous collaboration between providers, patients, and industry with policymakers to advance technology policies in a manner that minimizes stakeholder burden and really supports the stakeholder priorities. Now, with that in mind, what current barriers exist for post-acute care interoperability? Well, I'm sure anybody who's listening is no stranger to the fact that the current healthcare IT ecosystem is characterized by proprietary systems, closed data standards, and in many cases, the only way to transfer data between sources are if both parties are on the same network and use the same IT systems. Patients don't have access to their own data and providers often do not have access to complete patient records, and the current economic incentives are not closing this gap, especially in the area of post-acute care, where you go to see a doctor, that's not post-acute care, that's a, a, an episodic visit, and, and they can happen frequently. You go to the hospital periodically when your health condition worsens, and again, that's an episode of care. Post-acute care tends to be very long-lived, and so the barriers to interoperability, you know, getting somebody into a post-acute care setting and having a blind spot as to their treatment history and their condition history and, and what makes up normal for this individual so that we can work to try to stabilize them and get them back to that feeling of being level, what, what their normal state is. 
interoperability barriers can be a huge problem in our particular sector, which is why Passio was born. That makes a lot of sense. And my next question would be, when Passio first began its work, how did you all decide what use cases you would focus on for fire implementation guides? Well, we know that fire is being touted as really an excellent interoperability and data accessibility mechanism by the Office of the National Coordinator. And people will ask in a non-technical world, what is all this talk about fire? And I always tell them to take out their mobile phone, punch the button that says LinkedIn, and look at how everything that is rendered there can be visible on their phone immediately. That is how fire works. So fire is a very agile very responsive type of data access and interoperability. So when we're looking at the use cases where in post-acute care interoperability, we stand to do the most good for the largest population. Some of the subjects that the Paseo community decided to address first were physical and cognitive status. You know, if an individual presents in an emergency room, first thing they wanna know is, obviously they're having a health crisis, What is their cognitive status as a rule? What is their physical status as a rule? That way they can assess, oh, well, there is some confusion or there is an impact on their cognitive status. So we needed to look at that. And then their physicality, you know, not everybody who's elderly is infirm when it comes to physicality. You know, 80 is the new 60 and our elderly population, which is growing at a rapid pace in the U.S., is really a more healthy population than historically. So the Paseo community looked at those things that are the most impactful when this particular sector of society receives care. Physical, cognitive functioning. They looked at reassessment time points. So that probably sounds a little murky. If you're receiving home health services, there is a cadence that information has to be sent in for those Medicare billable home health services. Well, that's a different cadence than the assessments and the information that is sent in in a skilled nursing facility. And that's a different cadence from other sectors. And so there was an effort to create sort of a common way of looking at time points when individuals need to be reassessed. And that was another project that Passio took on. The project that I've been leading for about two and a half years we called Advanced Directive Interoperability. Now, it's not just about advanced directives, those statutory forms from each state. It is all manner of advanced healthcare decisions that an individual can memorialize for reference at a point when they might need medical care and they're unable to communicate with the medical team for themselves. So we knew that these critical documents that allow providers to respect a person's values, their culture, what's important to them, what makes a good quality of life to them. We knew that we needed to break the bonds of paper that have chained us for decades, and we needed to make this information equally accessible from care setting to care setting so those values could be honored. And then there is another initiative that was taken on. We christened it SPLASH. But it basically deals with speech pathology, language, and swallowing. So some of those most critical things that could plague the post-acute care community 
Those are the elements that Passio knew would bear the most fruit, and they dug into those first. Thank you, Maria. That is super helpful for our listeners to understand kind of where you guys were hoping to go with Passio. And I love the the comment you made about breaking the bonds of paper. What a great use case for advancing interoperability other than making sure people's end-of-life care wishes are met. So I really commend that work and thank you for sharing. You're very welcome. COVID created an awareness within all of us across the globe that an emergency could happen at any time. You could be 30 years old and driving a car, get in a car accident and be rendered unconscious. How does the medical team know if you have cultural or religious or spiritual or just plain personal feelings about the treatment you get and the outcomes that those medical professionals will work so hard to deliver if they don't know anything about you except what they see in front of you? So we knew that the time was right. And we are informed by a tremendous community of experts We have boots on the grounds clinicians. We have therapists. We have ethicists. We have CMS, ONC policymakers. We have just a wide array of extremely dedicated professionals in the field who inform this work. This is not technical work behind a curtain. These are real people coming to us going, I can't take it anymore if I don't have this. Or here is my problem and here's who I'm not serving if I can't get my hands on this. And those are the people that inform our work. And then we go back and we figure out technical solutions to meet that need. And we come back to them and we achieve that consensus. Yep, we heard you. You solved the problem or no. No, that was good. That was close. But you left this piece off the table. And so we'll go back and we'll we'll again present solutions to them. So we're very interactive and driven by the clinicians that we serve. Yeah, making sure the clinician's voice is in there because they're the ones who are needing this information. So that's awesome that you guys have that kind of relationship with all these different stakeholders. Now, as far as the fire implementation guides go, where are you guys at in the development of those guides? And you know, when will they be available for use? Well, the process of creating data standards can be very painstaking. You know, you look at, for those of you who work in healthcare buildings, there may be a hundred different ways of assessing your physical status. There are branded assessments. There are best-of-breed tools. Same thing goes with advanced directives. Same thing goes with speech and language, right? Everybody has a different way of doing things. So the first thing we have to do is perform sort of an environmental scan This is all of the information that we can find that makes up best practice. Then we go looking at standardized vocabulary sets. ICD-10 is one. You know, are you coding the diagnosis consistently? CPT codes. There are LOINC codes, which are standardized ways of exchanging questions with the same meaning. And then there is SNOMED, which is a standardized way of recording electronic health information. We pick those key points out of the scan. We lay them next to the standardized vocabularies, and then we begin to build these implementation guides. So it can be a painstaking process, but worth every single moment of our time because we know that the millions and millions of people whose lives we will improve 
So the Functional and Cognitive Status Implementation Guide, this is HL7 Speak, is at an STU-1, which is a standard for trial use. That means it's been reviewed, it's been tested, it's been vetted. Everybody in the standards world and the EMR world has reviewed it, found things we missed, and actually said, it's good, let's get it out there. So that standard for trial use one is out there. The Advanced Directive Interoperability, the guide that deals with person-authored information. So that's my personal advanced care plans that I'll create, my directives, five wishes, prepare for your care. There's some really, really good tools out there that allow me to say what's important to me. Then there's also those state-specific documents, those living wills, those durable medical power of attorneys. That implementation guide is due to be published before the end of this year. It was an extensive environmental scan and really a change to people from the world of paper. So we have been reconciling all of the comments that we got for about a year now, and we are going to release that this year. The second cut of that particular project will be physician-authored portable medical orders. And so we are working on that now, and we hope to issue that early in 2024. The splash guide is currently underway too, but the thing that I want to share is this. We don't need to wait as an industry until an iteration comes out. You know, CMS and the ONC not only fund, but are actively engaged in our projects. And they need to see live implementations when they know that there are EMRs or personal health records or technology innovation companies that are implementing these guides. They know that more attention needs to be paid to these areas. They feel the public support. And so we always encourage people, don't wait until a particular you know, aspect or a chapter comes out. Take them in their standard for trial use state and let's start making a difference in our healthcare ecosystem. I love that. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, why wait? <laughs> right. That's awesome. Now, we kind of touched on this earlier in our discussion, Maria, but if you could kind of speak again to how these implementation guides will really help improve patient-centered care. When a post-acute care community begins to treat somebody who is newly admitted without all of that interoperable data about who they are, what matters to them, what are the treatments they've had, what are the meds that they're on, where have they been, did they reside at home, was there a fall, they're really dealing with a blank slate. And when we're talking about patient-centered care, there's not a care provider out there, regardless of some of the things that you might hear, because sometimes people will focus on the negative. There's not a provider out there that doesn't want to do their very best to deliver personalized, meaningful care. So when we can expand interoperability, expand the access to information that medical teams can use to not run tests and figure out what's going on, but understand the history and the totality of that person, the leap into person-centered care that is focused and targeted and respectful, it is a very small leap as opposed to a deficit in inoperability. And I don't even know who you are or what your normal is. So I'm going to need to assess you and I'm going to do the very best I can for you, and I'm going to listen, and I'm going to ask questions, but I've got a pretty steep hill to climb. 
So when we're talking about patient-centered care, access to information is just an easy step forward to understand. It's a little bit more difficult to bring about and facilitate. But the more you know, the better a job you can do of quickly deciding on effective treatments, quickly understanding what's important, and really being able to honor that person as a unique individual. Definitely. Now, I kind of want to pivot here and discuss health equity, public-private collaborations like this. How can they help boost health equity? I think everything that the Passio Project works on deals with the topic of health equity. Health equity can come from a place of socioeconomic standing. It can come from a cultural standing. It can come from a lot of different places. When we can make information about an individual readily accessible, when seconds count and minutes matter, when we can produce information about who you are as a human, whether that's your advanced healthcare decisions, whether that is what is, you know, my physical and cognitive status as a rule before you've seen me for the first time, how do I speak? How do I swallow? You know, all of these things that make up my physical and my emotional being. Then sometimes health equity occurs from a human stance. You know, people might have their own preconceived notions about the individuals they're treating. With a blank slate, sometimes those human biases will rule the day. But when you have interoperable data, when you have information on that person and they become so much more than the person that you're treating, you know about what matters to them. You know where they came from. You know that they really struggled with a particular disease state and they've never been able to walk well. So the fact that they can't walk well now, that's not a new problem. It's something I need to work on, but that's not a new problem. Let me see what's new that I can do in the moment. When we look at equitable patient outcomes, when we look at dissolving human bias, when we look at private and public collaborations, we see all kinds of opportunity for innovation. We see funding that can come in from philanthropic organizations, and there's so many of them that are so devoted to human good. And then we see partnering with you know, government or local health systems and agencies These folks are overburdened, they're underfunded, and they're doing the best they can. When we see that collaboration and we see a particular initiative or a focus on a project, we see all kinds of good start to come from that. Quantifiable, data-supported, good improvements, reaching people who have been marginalized and really pulling those who may have stood on the fringes of, of some of this healthcare system innovation, we see them being pulled in and we see them being embraced. And so those public-private collaborations, they are essential to moving our healthcare system from where it was, where it has been for so very long, into this new normal that is patient-centered, interoperable, responsive, and effective based on outcomes. They're essential partnerships. Maria, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a great discussion. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to the important work that Passio is doing. It's an open community. There's no charge. 
anybody who wants to get in and make a difference, have your voice heard, tell us what is and isn't working for you. We will welcome you to come to the table and thank you for giving us a voice and allowing us to share the important work that we're doing for so many. And for our listeners, feel free to reach out to us at hnelson at techtarget.com to share your thoughts on this topic. You can also use that email address to tell us any other healthcare-related questions or stories you would like us to consider covering. If you like the episode, please go to Apple Podcasts and give us five stars and a positive review. Thanks for listening. This is a Tech Target production.